Hello to you. I do hope you're well and welcome to this A-level religious studies revision video. I'm Ben Wardle and today we are talking about situation ethics. So we are discussing the key Christian ethical theory, the teleological ethical theory, that is situation ethics. And as you can see, we'll be talking through these five key areas. We'll be looking at the background to situation ethics. So how did Fletcher end up devising this ethical theory? We'll be looking in particular at agape, so at the particular kind of love that underpins situation ethics. And we'll be looking at that in the teachings and examples set by Jesus, the man himself. We'll then be looking at Fletcher's four presuppositions. So the four presumptions, if I can call them that, that Fletcher makes and that underpin his uh, situation ethics theory. They really are the pillars that underpin situation ethics. So we'll be exploring them. We'll then talk about his six working principles. So we'll look at how he sees situation ethics working in practice. And then, of course, we'll be looking at our AO2. So we'll be looking at the strengths and the weaknesses of situation ethics with reference to other ethical theories as well. So thank you for joining me. Let's get started, shall we? I think in the spirit of doing the most loving thing, I think you need to get a few snacks. Do you know what I mean? Get your favorite foods, get the snacks that you love out, pun fully intended, and let's get started. Um, I'm very excited. I love this topic, actually. I think it's really interesting to consider where Fletcher is coming from, and then to also think about how his theory can actually be applied, you know, and there are some very strong criticisms, for example, from Barclay, about the fact that this theory really is quite impractical. It sounds lovely, doesn't it, to say, let's always do the most loving thing. But actually, if you're devising an ethical theory that's going to work in the real world, this just doesn't work because, you know, you can't just say the only rule we're going to have in life is do the most loving thing. Um, you know, what would the consequences of that be? Don't humans need more rules, more guidance, more legislation, for example? That is certainly what Barclay is going to be saying a little bit later on. But first, before we jump straight to the AO2, let's just start by taking a step back and let's meet the key thinkers who we will be discussing today. So I think it's really important to always be linking any points you make in your essays back to the person who said it, just to show the examiner that you've got real expertise on situation ethics. So if you can refer to scholars, that's going to really impress your examiner. So, of course, we'll be talking about Joseph Fletcher, the main man who devised this theory in the 1960s. We'll also be talking about Jesus Christ, the one and only. So we're going back 2000 years to look at the roots of this theory in the New Testament, in the teachings and examples set by Jesus Christ. We'll be looking at William Temple, a former archbishop who heavily influenced Joseph Fletcher in terms of talking about the importance of love in Christian ethics. We'll be talking about Pope Pius XII, who was a critic of situation ethics, and he really represents the Catholic Church's criticism of situation ethics. They side with natural moral law as a Christian ethical theory, although we will talk about how Pope Francis has been maybe more liberal and has put more emphasis on doing the most loving thing. So we'll consider that later. We'll be talking about William Barclay. He's looking quite happy there, but let me tell you, he is not happy about situation ethics. We'll be talking about his book, Ethics in a Permissive Society. And it's fair to say he is not impressed with Fletcher and he completely annihilates most of what Fletcher says. So lots to talk about there. And I also want to draw your attention to the 
fact that Jeremy Bentham is very important when we talk about situation ethics. We know that Fletcher was inspired by Bentham and his utilitarianism. Of course, situation and ethics and utilitarianism are both uh, teleological, they're both consequentialist theories. Um, but in particular, Fletcher was inspired in creating his agapeic calculus by um, Bentham's calculus, his philosophic calculus. And so we'll be looking at some comparisons between Bentham's secular um, approach to ethics and then how that in inspired, I'm making up words now, do excuse me, I meant to say inspired um, Fletcher and the development of situation ethics. And as I say, we will constantly be making those links between the ethical theories. Very important that we do so in terms of developing our evaluation, developing our critical analysis and showing the examiner that we are experts in religious ethics. So plenty of opportunities to make those links, to, you know, make those connections. And, you know, we'll be looking out for those opportunities throughout today's revision video. Before we do get started, I just want to start by going over a couple of key terms. I think these key terms are really important for us maximizing our marks in the AQA um, religious ethics exam. So the first key term is agape. Now we'll be talking in just a moment about what kind of love Fletcher talks about or he means when he says you should do the most loving thing. Um, and to give you a little spoiler, it is agape, which is defined as unconditional selfless love, the highest form of Christian love. Yeah. So when Fletcher is saying do the most loving thing, he is talking about a particular kind of love, you know, and I think we all use the word love in a much more relaxed way, if I could put it like that. You know, you might say, I love the Kardashians. I love a mince pie. Sorry, I'm filming this just before Christmas. You know, it sounds very random if you're watching in the summer. <laughs> We might say I love a mince pie, I love a green tea, if you may, don't judge, you know, but actually when he talks about doing the most loving thing, it's not love in that kind of emotional, emotive way, if I can put it like that. It's this unconditional selfless love modelled by Jesus Christ, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and seen as the highest form of Christian love. The agapeic calculus then is, as I said, parallel to Bentham's philosophic calculus, and it is a way of deciding action. So obviously, situation ethics is about deciding in that situation what is the most loving thing to do, what course of action to take. And the agapeic calculus is designed by Fletcher to help you make that decision. So you're not just stood there going, what is the most loving thing to do? He actually gives you a little calculus to calculate and make your decision based on that. So, you know, that's his little tool. He might have created an app if apps existed back in the 60s and we could all get out our agapeic calculus and be calculating in every situation. Antinomia, I can't say the word, excuse me. I started that so confidently. Antinominalism, there we go, is um, really important. It's a really fancy word and it just means against law. So you are anti-norms. That's how I like to remember it. It's the belief that there should be no laws or principles governing behaviour. I'm not going to attempt to say the word again, but there it is. So it's this idea that you are completely against rules. And of course, that would lead to anarchy. Legalism, I can say that word, is strict and rigid conformity to all laws and rules. So we would associate this with natural moral law. 
So in contrast, legalism is about always following the rules and being very strict in, as I say, following them and sticking to them. An intrinsic good then is something that is ethically good in and of itself. Now, in Fletcher's theory, the only intrinsic good is love. Everything else is subjective. And we'll talk about what that means a little bit later on. OK, let's talk about his four presuppositions then very quickly. Personalism. This is the idea that morality should be about people, not rules. So you should prioritize people rather than following rules. Positivism, this is the idea that love is the only intrinsically good thing, and you hold that belief by faith rather than fact. So you have faith first, and then you work out how to back that belief up. This is very similar to St. Anselm's ontological argument and the idea that faith precedes understanding. And this is one of your key, as I say, presuppositions, one of your four presuppositions for Fletcher's situation ethics. We then have pragmatism. Very simply, this means that we should do whatever works in the situation. So it's doing the most practical thing in each circumstance. And then relativism is another one of those four key presuppositions. I can't even speak today, do excuse me. One of those four presuppositions, which is that morality is relative to the situation. And finally, teleological ethics, which is an example uh, or situation ethics is an example of this, is the idea that you should look to the consequences or the ends of your actions to determine whether they are morally right. And the word itself is derived from the ancient Greek telos, which we know from our study of Aristotle means purpose or ultimate aim. So with teleological ethics, you are thinking about the outcomes, whereas with deontological ethics, you are thinking about the act itself. OK, so we made it through the key terms. I really should have rehearsed that, shouldn't I? But there we go. There are the key terms. Let's get started. So what I want to do, and I'm seeing that word again, and I'm trying to decide in my head, should I try and say it again or not? Antinomialism. There we go. So on this um, chart here, you have got the two extremes that I've just mentioned. On the one hand, you've got antinomialism, the rejection and abandonment of all laws and rules. And Fletcher rejects this. He says, you know, this cannot work. It does not work. And so he rejects antinomialism. There we go. I've got it now. On the other hand, at the other extreme end is legalism. And this is strict and rigid conformity to all laws and rules. So as you can see, you've got these two extremes when it comes to rules and laws. On the one hand, you've got the complete rejection and abandonment of them. And then on the other hand, you've got strict and rigid conformity to all of them. And as I say, Fletcher sees these as the two extremes and he rejects both of them. And instead, he says we need to find a middle ground. And that middle ground is, believe it or not, situation ethics. So situation ethics is all about taking this middle ground between the extreme of antinomialism, when there are absolutely no laws and rules, and the extreme of legalism, where you have strict and rigid conformity to every single tiny rule and law. And as I say, he places situation ethics in the middle. It is the middle ground. It's supposed to balance the two out. And he says that is the optimal, the perfect place for an ethical theory to be located as a center point in the middle of those two extremes. So remember, he rejects both of them and he arrives at this middle point, the middle ground, if you like, which is situation ethics.
And he is very much inspired. Again, I can't speak today, excuse me. He is very much inspired by this man here, William Temple, who was a former Archbishop of Canterbury, who said this, I love this quote. Let's hope I can actually read it. <laughs> he said, it is axiomatic that love should be the predominant Christian impulse. Now, this heavily influences Fletcher, this idea that love should be the predominant Christian impulse, that above everything else, love should be the predominant impulse that a Christian lives their life by, that this should be their priority in the things they do, in the ethical decisions they make, and in the way that they live their lives. Love should always be the predominant Christian impulse. And we'll look at the New Testament origins of this belief in just a moment. And so Fletcher decides that love is the only universal. Now, I love this quote. I had this quote on a post-it note when I was doing my A-levels because it's so easy to remember and it is brilliant to apply in the exam because it really encapsulates what situation ethics is all about. It's this idea that love, and we'll talk about what love is and what love means, is the only universal. That is the only thing that is always right in every situation, according to Fletcher. And indeed, he has a very interesting idea of what love actually is, because as they say, we do have this debate about, well, you're doing the most loving thing, but what is the most loving thing? He says that love is justice distributed. And if you think about legal systems, what are they all about? They're about justice, aren't they? And so he is saying that love is the best impulse. Love is the best thing to make all your decisions by and live your life by because it is justice distributed. It is not just some emotion. It's not just some feeling of sympathy or empathy. And indeed, he rejects that as an understanding of love in this context. He says it is justice distributed. So it is fairness. It is righteousness. It is the right thing. And that is very important for understanding Fletcher and understanding situation ethics. So that does lead me on to this question of what do we mean by love? And I think it's very, very important that we establish this from the outset, because when you're talking about situation ethics, you're constantly going, do the most loving thing. But what do we actually mean when we say do the most loving thing? As you can see here, Fletcher chooses agape as his understanding of Christian love. That is the unconditional selfless love that you have, and it is best demonstrated by Jesus. His love was not subjective. His love was not based on, I really like your hair, I'm gonna help you. I really like your outfit today, let me give you some salvation. His love, according to Christianity, was unconditional and selfless, best exemplified by his um, death as a sacrifice on the cross. He did that as this act of unconditional selfless love. He gave up his life for all humanity. That is the idea at the core of Christianity. And so agape is what we mean when we talk about Christian love in the context of situation ethics. It is unconditional selfless love. It's being prepared to sacrifice yourself, your own life, in Jesus's case, for the good of others even people that you don't know. So it is not liking. And that's going to be one of the uh, working principles that love is not liking. It's not about liking something or, as they say, having an emotional reaction or an emotional connection. It is unconditional. It is 
selfless. So very important we know that. In contrast, we do then have other uh, kinds of love that the Greeks spoke about. So eros, for example, which was erotic, passionate, sexual love. That is obviously not the kind of love Fletcher is talking about in situation ethics. We don't think, what is going to be the most erotic thing to do in this situation? Let's do that. Um, philia, again, friendly or friendship love between equals. Again, you know, that's kind of conditional, isn't it? Based on being friends with somebody. Again, that's not what situation ethics is. And then storage as well, which is family love, especially of parents and children. Now, of course, that's important for Christians, but it's not the greatest kind of love in Christianity. It, you know, it is agape that is modeled by Jesus as this unconditional selfless love that Christians should try to put into practice in their own lives. And Bonhoeffer, I think, has a great quote on this. This is a personal favorite of mine. And he said, what is a life full of pleasure, honor, fame, and glamour compared to a life lived in love? And I think that quote really encapsulates the Christian understanding of love, because I think many people would say, oh, you know, it's I love pleasure. I love honor. I love fame. I love glamour. But then he is contrasting those things with love. And I think that demonstrates how radical this Christian idea of love is, that it is unconditional, selfless love. It's not love for yourself. It's not love for pleasures and fame and fortune. And it's not conditional. You know, it's not the love you might have for a Louis Vuitton bag. It is unconditional and selfless. And as I say, this is derived from scripture. This is derived from the New Testament, where we see the life of Jesus and we hear the teachings of Jesus. So let me just give you some of the key scriptural quotes that underpin this idea of agape in situation ethics. So we, we read in John chapter 15 that Jesus says, my command is this love each other as I have loved you. So the idea is that agape has come from Jesus. He has given it to you. He has modeled it and he has given it to you as a key example. St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, love must be sincere. So it must be authentic. It must be real. You must be genuine. Um, Galatians, St. Paul writes, we love because he first loved us. So again, it's the idea that this comes from Jesus, that you are capable of it, that you know what it is because it's been modeled by Jesus it's been demonstrated by him. And then I think John chapter 15 really illustrates this. There is no greater love than this, that a person would lay down his life for the sake of his friends. Now, obviously, it says there the sake of his friends, which is obviously um, not agape, it's not unconditional love. But again, it's showing what love means. It entails some kind of sacrifice. It's not about being selfish, indulging your own desires and pleasures, wants and needs. It is this kind of selfless sacrifice for others. Um, a great quote here from John that God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So the idea that when you live a life of love, you are living in God and God is living in you. So that would be great support for situation ethics, why you should base your life on love, because it says God is love. And if you live in love, God lives in you. So really illustrating the importance of love in a Christian's life, although you could respond by saying, is that enough? Is it just enough to have love? Um, Colossians says, above all, be loving. So again, the idea that, you know, doing the most loving thing is the priority, that it is axiomatic, that love should be the predominant Christian impulse, because above all, 
you should be loving. This ties everything together perfectly. Really nice quote there. St. Paul writes in Corinthians, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So again, the idea that love should be the absolute priority for Christians. It should be your number one priority. It's your number one duty. It is modeled by Jesus. It is shown by Jesus. And then you should put that into practice as your priority in the way you live your life and in your moral decision-making. Again, a really famous quote used at weddings um, from Corinthians here, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy it does not boast it is not proud it does not dishonor others it is not self-seeking and again that's very important this idea it's an unconditional love you're not doing what's going to be the most loving thing for you necessarily it's got to be selfless that's what agape is all about um it is not easily angered it keeps no record of wrongs and then finally, really important from Mark chapter 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandments greater than these. So the idea that Jesus himself not only models love in, you know, his healing and his kindness and then his death for others, but then he also explicitly teaches that love is superior to all the other rules and all the other teachings there is no commandment greater than these to love your neighbor as yourself and of course that is known as the golden rule so you might want to pick a couple of those quotes that you could use in an essay to show your examiner that you do understand you know the foundations of situation ethics in the New Testament, in the life and teachings of Jesus, who is the key role model for Fletcher, who is the key example for Fletcher in terms of what it actually means to live a life of love and to do the most loving thing in each situation. You know, Jesus healing on the Sabbath, for example, he was prepared to break the rules of the day to do the most loving thing, which was to help somebody, to heal somebody. So, you know, lots of great links you can make to scripture when it comes to talking about situation ethics. So very quickly, before we get onto his four presuppositions, I want to mention to you Fletcher's view of conscience, because this really helps you to understand his idea of situation ethics as this very individualistic approach to moral decision making. And he interestingly sees the conscience as a thing that you do rather than a thing that exists. So it's, as he says, a, um, he sees it as a verb rather than a noun. So let me unpack this for you. I know it sounds like I'm going to start doing an A-level English language lesson now, but let me just share this quote with you. He says, the traditional error lies in thinking about conscience as a noun instead of a verb. So he rejects the idea that the conscience is a thing. He says instead that it's something we do. He said this reflects the fixity and establishment mindedness of all law ethics as contrasted to love ethics. And I love that quote, that he's contrasting law ethics with love ethics. His theory is very much one of love ethics. Of course it is. And he's very critical of, you know, the rigid nature and the legalistic nature of what he calls the law ethics. There is no conscience, he says, a very dramatic, bold claim, isn't it? Conscience is merely a word for our attempts to make decisions creatively, constructively, 
fittingly. And I think the reason he says this is because he doesn't want you to think there's like a voice of God in your head telling you exactly what to do in each situation. You've got to follow this rule. You've got to do this thing. Because of course, for Fletcher, the only universal is love. And so for him, conscience is not about having this direct line of communication where God is telling you in this situation, you've got to do exactly this because of this rule and this law. He is saying that actually conscience is a process. It's an attempt to make decisions. And I think that reflects his view that every um, moral issue is relative. You know, that love is the only universal. And then in each case, you've got to work out creatively, constructively and fittingly what is the right thing to do. So that isn't this little, um, as I say, voice of God in your head telling you exactly what to do. But instead, you've got the autonomy, you've got the individual responsibility to work out to roll up your sleeves and make that decision to make that judgment based on the circumstances based on the unique particular situation that you are in and I think very importantly here is his ideas of the four presuppositions which we are going to talk about now so just keep that in mind no pun intended when we're talking about the conscience as we do move through in terms of Fletcher's view of conscience as this process where each individual is not given this voice where they are told what to do, but actually they have to make that decision for themselves. He gives the individual complete autonomy and complete responsibility to assess the situation and then to make a judgment on what is the most loving thing to do. And of course, that's where your agapeic calculus is going to come in handy as well so you know if he could get that app on the app store soon we'll all be whipping out our phones and putting in the data and finding out what we should do in each situation so these four presuppositions what I'm going to do now is talk you through all four so pragmatism relativism positivism and personalism if you would like to fill in the table um, as I go through them then you are very welcome to get the full powerpoint now the link as it says there is in the description box below or you might want to just get a piece of paper get your notepad out and then scribble a few notes as we do go through them so the first one is pragmatism. And pragmatism is based on the idea that situation ethics is about seeking practical solutions. So when you hear the word pragmatism, all you need to think is practical. It is that easy to remember. It's just a fancy way of saying, do the most practical thing. Don't stick to a set of rigid rules and expectations, but roll up your sleeves and do the most practical thing. Um, and we can link this to William James, who we've met when we spoke about religious experiences, because he was a pragmatist. Um, and he said, a pragmatist turns his back upon fixed principles and pretended absolutes. So when it comes to situation ethics, we turn our back upon fixed principles. So, for example, the five primary precepts of natural moral law, we don't need to stick to them. We need to roll up our sleeves and seek out a practical solution that actually works in the real world. Now, I've put there that it is actually quite similar to utilitarianism and the principle of utility, the idea of doing whatever is most useful. Yeah, this idea that ethics should be about doing the most useful thing. Um, but I think that is quite a tenuous link. So you might not want to um, make a big deal of that, shall we say. <laughs> but I'm just trying to help to sort of compare these ethical theories and get a sense of things that they might have in common. And then we'll also look at differences. But yeah, the first presupposition is pragmatism, that situation ethics is all about seeking the most practical solution 
for each situation, the thing that will work rather than just sticking to the norms, sticking to the traditions, sticking to the rules. Our second one then is relativism. And this is simply the idea that morality should be relative to the facts of the particular situation. So of course, you know, um, as I've put here in the quote, the situationist is going to avoid words like never do this, or this is the perfect way to approach this situation. Always do this, or you know, the teachings are complete, and you are going to avoid them as you avoid the plague. That is what Joseph Fletcher said, because you always believe that morality is relative to the facts of the particular situation that you find yourself in. And of course, Fletcher believes that love is the only universal, and then you should apply that to each situation. So beyond love, there are no absolutes, everything is relative. And as Peter Vardy said, it all depends is a well-used word. Actually, it's a phrase, Peter, but let's not dwell on that. Um, used <laughs> by a situationist. So what he's saying there is a situationist is always going to say, well, it all depends on the situation. Morality is always relative to the facts of the particular situation. So when you're thinking, is that the right thing to do? Should you do that? The situationist is going to say, it all depends on the particulars of that situation. So you can't make that judgment in advance. You have to be in the moment, in the situation, deciding what works in that situation. So, you know, building on pragmatism and saying morality is then relative to the facts of that particular situation you find yourself in. Positivism then, okay? A little bit more complex now. So this is the idea um, that belief in a God of love is what we call posited. So it is proposed and then it is supported. So like Anselm, so say like Anselm who devised the ontological argument, Fletcher believes that faith comes first. So we have to have faith in a God of love. That is not something that needs to be proven before we believe it. We need to put our faith in a God of love and then, because we have a belief in the supremacy of love, because of this, we then reason out what supports that love in the situation that faces us. So positivism is the idea that Christian ethics should be faith working through love. So again, you put your faith in a God of love, which tells you about the supremacy of love. And then you reason out what will support that love in the situation that faces you. But this is probably the most religious element, I would say, of the entire theory. The idea that faith comes first, that Christian ethics should be faith working through love. And the idea that it's built upon belief in a God of love who becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ, who then shows us agape in the New Testament. And a great quote, of course, from the Gospel of John, that God is love. OK, your fourth and final um, presupposition is not pragmatism. I don't know why it says pragmatism there. It should say personalism. I do apologise. Big error, big mistake. If you do download the PowerPoint, that will be corrected. But please do ignore that. I am very embarrassed right now. So personalism, situation ethics puts people at the centre of concern. People, and I love this line, people are to be loved, not rules. You should prioritise people over the rules. And Joseph Fletcher said this, um, drop the legalist's love of law and accept only the love of law. I mean, a love of law of love, excuse me. That is your key killer quote. I love that. 
drop the legalist love of law and accept only the law of love. You know, legalists love their laws. They love the laws more than they love people. So they stick to the laws and they talk about the laws, but they don't then actually apply love in the real world. The only thing that they love are the laws. And so he says, whereas a legalist asks, what does the law say? The situationist asks, who is to be helped? And I think one of the best examples of why situation ethics is about personalism is this line here. God became incarnate in a person, Jesus Christ. So we've just said when we spoke about positivism, that situation ethics is all about this idea that you have faith in a God of love. And then that God of love becomes incarnate in the world as an act of love in order to teach love, to demonstrate love, to exemplify love in the person of Jesus Christ, who then becomes the key role model for those who follow situation ethics. And so personalism, again, as it should say that, should say that, I do apologize, is all about the fact that situation ethics puts people at the center of concern rather than rules because people are to be loved not rules so drop the legalist love of law and accept only the law of love okay so there are your four presuppositions now what we need to move on to next are what we call the six working propositions so the presuppositions as i say are like the pillars that underpin situation ethics, whereas the working propositions are then about how it's applied. So we've looked at the foundations that underpin and hold up this idea of situation ethics, but now we're going to take a look at how situation ethics actually works in practice. And this is where the six working propositions come into it. So we're going to talk through them and we're going to, again, if you would like to fill in this table. So, you know, you are very welcome to get a copy of the PowerPoint, print off the slides, and then you can fill this in as we go through. And hopefully there are going to be no more tongue twisters on the slides and there are going to be no more mistakes on the slides. But hey, let's all say a little prayer. Let's manifest it. So let's get started, shall we? Your first working principle is that love is the only absolute. It's this idea that love is intrinsically good. And your key quote there is from Fletcher, that only one thing is intrinsically good, namely love, nothing else at all. So in situation ethics, we have this key principle that the only intrinsically good thing is love, nothing else. Love is the only principle that is good and right in every situation. Whatever is loving is right. And again, I have to remind you, it's about agape. It's not about eros. It's not about your love for... TikTok. It's not about your love for Toblerone. It's about this unconditional selfless love demonstrated by Jesus. Um, it is the one regulative principle of Christian ethics. So again, we can go all the way back to William Temple. You know, it is axiomatic that love should be the predominant Christian impulse. And then Fletcher himself saying love is the only universal. Love is not something we have, but something we do. Remember when Fletcher said that love is justice distributed. It is not a feeling. It is something that we do. Um, again, quite similar to his idea of conscience as well, isn't it? And he says the situationist holds that whatever is the most loving thing in the situation is the right and good thing. It is not excused 
inexcusably evil, it is positively good. So there is your key core belief in situation ethics, that whatever is the most loving thing in the situation is the right and good thing. And again, the agapeic calculus is what Fletcher offers us to work that out in each situation. And remember, the theory is founded upon relativism and the idea that morality is dependent on the circumstances. So there is no um, guidelines beyond do the most loving thing because it's always going to be relative to the particulars of the situation you're in. Okay, a second principle then is that Christian decision-making is based on love. So. This is a key quote from Fletcher, that the ruling norm of Christian decision-making is love, nothing else. So it is love alone that is always the right thing for a Christian to use when making their moral decisions. And of course, as Fletcher said, let's see if I can actually say it correctly this time, drop the legalist's love of law and accept only the law of love. So drop the legalist love of law and accept only the law of love. There you go. Great tongue twister. Great vocal warm up if anyone's also doing A-level theatre studies. Um, so love employs law when it seems worthwhile. Otherwise, love can break any or all of the commandments. Because remember, love is superior. As St. Paul wrote, the greatest of these is love. Love is superior. Love is more important to any law any commandment, any precept, any other principle, because love is the ruling norm of Christian decision-making. And so if, you know, if the commandment, following the commandment will lead to the most loving outcome, then yeah, follow the commandment. But you shouldn't be following it deontologically. It should always be teleological. You should always be thinking, will this lead, will following this commandment lead to the most loving outcome? And if it will, then absolutely follow that commandment. But if it won't, don't think twice before abandoning it and breaking it. Um, now, I've noted here a quick AO2 consideration for you, because we could consider, is love actually the only thing a Christian should consider when making their moral decisions? What about, for example, all the other rules and laws in the Bible? There are over 600 rules in the Bible, for example. Um, or what about the other teachings from other sources of wisdom and authority? So if you think about, you know, all the teachings in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, for example, is it right that you should just abandon thousands of years worth of ethical thinking from the church to just do the most loving thing based on your own personal judgment in that particular situation um and so actually if you think about a christian so thinking as they say about paper two sources of wisdom and authority you know what does it mean to make a moral decision as a Christian? Should you not be consulting the Bible? Should you not be consulting the church teachings, you know, and thinking, right, what are the laws here? Should I really be prepared to abandon all of those teachings and all of those laws and rules to make my own decision about what is loving in this particular situation? It certainly gives a lot of autonomy to the individual. That is for sure. And that is why the Catholic Church is not impressed at all. Um, you will not be surprised to hear. OK, your next one then is that love and justice are the same. So, again, we're thinking a bit more about what do we mean when we say do the most loving thing. Um, and so Fletcher said love and justice are the same for justice is love distributed, nothing else. 
Love becomes justice. Love in society has to be calculating, careful, prudent and distributive in caring for all. And that is justice. So if we are loving, we will do the most just thing. We will do the right thing. There will be justice if we do the most loving thing, because Fletcher says love and justice are the same. They're two sides of the same coin, I suppose you could say. So we believe that justice is the many sidedness of love. So love is not just one to one. It's not just from one person to another um, and reciprocated. Love is in international affairs. It's in trade treaties. It's in UN policy and the like. So, again, we need to talk about love of neighbours, not neighbour. Remember, for Fletcher, agape is the love he is discussing. It is unconditional, selfless love for all people rather than this personal preference because you like somebody or, you know, you like what they're wearing or because you know them, you're friends with them or their family. So he says love and justice need to be reunited because justice is nothing more than love working out its problems. Um, and he says justice is simply Christian love using its head, calculating its duties and obligations. Now, I think that's interesting because we often associate love with the heart, don't we? And we talk about there being this difference between the head and the heart. But actually, by talking about love and justice being the same, Fletcher is bringing together the head and the heart because he's seeing love and justice as two sides of the same coin, that justice is Christian love using its head, calculating its duties and obligations. Now, talking of calculating, Fletcher then proposes the agapeic calculus. And this is the idea that you can actually calculate what the most loving thing to do will be. And this reflects his idea of the conscience being this process and this um, procedure, if you like. And he, as I say, is inspired by Jeremy Bentham and his version of this for act utilitarianism, the philosophic calculus. He creates the agapeic calculus. So, here it is for you. As I say, it is parallel to Jeremy Bentham's version, which is used in his act utilitarian ethics, um, by which he proposes we can work out which action will bring about the greatest happiness for the greatest number. But of course, um, for Fletcher, he is replacing happiness, he's replacing pleasure with love. So what does the calculus take into account? It takes into account, as you know from your study of utilitarianism, these seven areas. Duration, intensity, propink, propping. Oh my gosh, guys, I actually can't speak today. I don't think I've ever been unable to say that word as, as terribly as today. Propinquity. There we go. I think, oh my gosh, I actually think I need a doctor. Um, extent, certainty, purity and fecundity. So you have got to consider. So I want you to think about whether this is practical, first of all. So let's have an AO2 moment. Do you think in every single situation a Christian faces, they should go, never mind the laws, never mind the rules. Let me get my agapeic calculus out. How long will the love last? How intense will it be? How near or remote will it be? How widely will it cover? How probable is it? How free from pain is it? And will it lead to further love? There we go. Done. Decision made. So just be thinking, as I say, take an AO2 moment. Is this practical? Is this actually going to work in practice? But certainly in terms of the theory behind situation ethics, the theory is that deciding what is the most loving thing to do can be achieved using this agapeic 
calculus, considering these seven factors. And by answering those questions, you will be able to make your decision about what the most loving thing to do is. So Fletcher, you know, is, I suppose, being helpful here, providing us with this application, which actually helps us to make these decisions, you know, in each situation. I suppose if he's going to say there are no laws, you've got to calculate it yourself in each situation. It is the least you can do, isn't it, to give us this calculus to help. But actually, how helpful is this calculus and can this actually be used in every single situation that you face? And one other point I would make is what if I use the calculus and come to a very different conclusion to you, you know, because it's not like two add two equals four, is it, when it comes to calculating love? So, you know, how reliable would the calculus be? That is something else that maybe you want to consider in terms of your AO2 evaluation. Okay, number four then, our next working principle is that love is not liking. And I think this is a really, really important one to remember. As I say, agape is unconditional and selfless. And Fletcher says this, love wills the neighbor's good whether we like him or not. I think that's very important to remember. It is not about, oh, I love Doritos. I love Pringles. Oh, I don't really love hula hoops, yeah? It's not about this preference based on what you like. And as I say, in modern society, we use the word love a lot. As um, Fletcher says, agape goes out to neighbours, not for our own sakes, but for theirs. So let's unpack this. Let's see what he's got to say. He is saying that love is not sentimental. It is not like sympathy or affection. It is brought about by the human will. So remember when he was saying about love and justice being the same thing. It is not this emotional thing that comes directly from the heart. It does actually require some use of reason. Uh, uh, love does not seek out the deserving, nor does it make judgments about the people it wants to serve. So it shouldn't be based on your feelings of empathy or sympathy. It has to be agape. It has to be unconditional and selfless. Um, and as he says, agape goes out to neighbours, not for our own sakes, um, but for theirs. Not for theirs, sorry. No, I will start that again. Agape goes out to neighbours, not for our own sakes. Not for theirs, really, but for God's. Christian love is the business of loving the unlovable. And I really like that quote. Christian love is the business of loving the unlovable. So Fletcher is saying that, you know, when it comes to agape, it's not for your own good. It's not to make you feel better, you know, for those feelings of guilt that you feel to go away. It's not even about the other person. It's not about feeling empathy for them and sympathy for them. It's about God. Yeah. And it's this business of loving the unlovable without expecting anything in return, without gaining anything for yourself, because it is, let me say it again, selfless and unconditional, as demonstrated by Jesus. Um, and so, of course, love needs calculation. So, again, I think the agape calculus really demonstrates to us, doesn't it, that love isn't just some sentimental response or some feeling um, which drives you to do something to help others. In terms of the agapeic calculus, that really nicely reminds us that it is something that you are calculating and it's brought about by the human will rather than coming straight from the heart as an instinctive response. Um, and remember, love wills the neighbour's good whether we like him or not. Okay, number five then, love justifies its means. Remember, this is a teleological theory. So it's all about the consequences. It's all about the outcomes. It's all about the aims. Um, and Fletcher says, we cannot refuse to do a deed which has a mainly good end 
just because it entails some evil. The end justifies the means. And again, this is where we see similarity with uh, utilitarianism, don't we? Because again, utilitarianism is the idea that the end justifies the means. Fletcher says, what is sometimes good may at other times be evil, and what is sometimes wrong may sometimes be right, when it serves a good enough end depending on the situation. Of course, it depends on the situation, Fletcher. So love justifies its means. The end justifies the means. So of course, the Catholic Church says that certain things are always intrinsically evil, that certain things are in and of themselves bad and wrong. And Immanuel Kant, of course, our key deontologist, oh, oh my gosh, I cannot speak today, our key uh, deontologist, I need to lie down. Our key deontologist, there we go, I can't say the word, says that certain things are in and of themselves wrong. So for example, he says you are never justified to lie, even if it's to save a life. You're never justified to steal, even if it's to feed your starving baby. And it's from a big multi-billion pound supermarket if we were applying Kant to the modern world and talking about Tesco. Um, so for situation ethics, the end does justify the means, yeah? Only, indeed, the end justifies the means, nothing else. And so Fletcher says there are four factors to consider when judging a situation. He says, number one, what end do we seek? Excuse me, guys, I just need some of my Ribena. Honestly, uh, what end do we seek? Number two, what means do we use to obtain it? Number three, what motive is behind our act? And number four, what are the foreseeable consequences? And so they are the four factors that we need to consider when judging a situation. And a quick AO2 note that this is similar to utilitarianism, but it is in stark contrast, as they say, to Kantian ethics. And this is very much showing you why situation ethics is a teleological ethical theory, because it's saying that only the end justifies the means, nothing else. In stark contrast to Kant, who assessed morality on each and every action, with situation ethics, you're taking a step back and you're saying, right, what is the outcome going to be? What is the aim here? What is the end goal here? And then how do we get there? And as I say, the end then justifies the means that you use to get there. OK, and then finally, really important one. And, it's, you know, it's not going to come as a shock to you. It's that love's decisions are made situationally, not prescriptively. So really great quote from Joseph Fletcher is that love's decisions are made situationally, not prescriptively. So he says that Jesus, in his example in the New Testament, was a situationist himself. He was prepared to break the laws of the day in order to show agape. And our key example from Luke 6 is that he healed on the Sabbath. So he was prepared to break the rules of the time in order to do something loving, to help somebody else. Jesus, and this is a separate point, but an equally important point, did not give any teachings on sex ethics, such as contraception, homosexuality, or sex before marriage. Given this silence, Fletcher says, love has to decide in the situation there and then. So Jesus didn't teach about these things, but what he did teach is that there is no commandment greater than loving your neighbor. So Jesus didn't give us specifics on these issues, but he did give us a very clear instruction to do the most loving thing. And so for Fletcher, 
That is key. That love decisions should therefore be made situationally, not prescriptively. Now, again, this is in stark contrast, isn't it, to the Catholic Church and the Catechism, for example, which gives very, very clear teachings on why contraception is wrong, why homosexuality is wrong, and why sex before marriage is wrong. But for Fletcher, Jesus didn't speak about this, and therefore we have to focus on what Jesus did speak about, which was love. And then Jesus's example, such as healing on the Sabbath, suggests that Jesus was prepared to break the conventional rules and laws of society of the day in order to do the most loving thing, in order to show agape. So that is the foundation from the New Testament for Fletcher's thinking here for the sixth working principle. And so he says whether any form of sex is good or evil depends only on whether love is fully served. He says morality is situational, not prescriptive. And so on the issue of same-sex relationships, for example, Fletcher would say, well, is love fully served in this relationship? Is it loving? Is the end of the relationship, if you like, loving? And so the morality is situational to that particular couple in their particular relationship, rather than being prescriptive and saying that two people of the same gender can never be in a Christian relationship that could be blessed by the church, for example. In sort of um, contrast to this, we're going to talk about Barclay, who argues that society needs rules in order to function. You cannot just say that everything is based on the situation, that you cannot prescribe ethics at all. You know, he's going to say we do need a prescriptive approach to ethics. We do need to give people rules and laws to follow. Otherwise, we're going to end up with absolute chaos. We're going to end up with absolute anarchy. Okay. So we have made it through the four presuppositions and the six working principles. If you are still with me, then you do deserve a moment to just breathe. So you might want to pause the video, have a drink, have a snack. Do you know what I mean? And then we will continue. We're going to look at some applications. We're going to look at some comparisons to other ethical theories. And very excitingly, we are going to look at the strengths and the weaknesses. So very quickly. What I want you to do is just think about how you might apply situation ethics to these moral dilemmas. So I've got six moral dilemmas here for you that you could be confronted with as a Christian, hypothetically. And, you know, I want you to think if you were following situation ethics, if you were Joseph Fletcher, what would you do? What would you say if you got the agapeic calculus out? What results do you think you would come to? So, for example, a same-sex marriage, you know, abortion after rape, allowing euthanasia, stealing to feed your starving child, committing adultery or granting a divorce. Now, of those off the top of my head, I would say probably committing adultery is the only one situation ethics I cannot see it allowing, that I cannot ever see as being justified as the most loving thing to do. Um, but you might disagree with me. So do let me know down in the comments you know if you were applying situation ethics to these moral dilemmas thinking about the fact that love's decisions are made situationally and that love is the only universal you know what do you think situation ethics would say about these six moral dilemmas so yeah very interested to hear what you think down in the comments below I just also wanted to take a moment to compare situation ethics with a couple of other theories. So natural moral law and situation ethics is a really interesting one because they are obviously both religious theories. They are both Christian ethical theories, but they could not be more contrasting. You know, they really are at the 
opposite ends of a spectrum here you know so for example natural moral law is then deontological in application you know it's saying that there are five primary precepts that must always be followed and um, obviously the unbending absolutism of natural moral law makes it legalistic and inflexible which you know would surely bring Fletcher out in a rash you know that is the absolute opposite of what he believes in when it comes to Christian ethical decision making it is obviously legalistic as it prescribes those five primary precepts and then of course the Catholic Church supports natural moral law and Pope Pius XII was very clear in his condemnation of situation ethics however I did think it was interesting that if you think about that proportionalist development on natural moral law which again the Catholic Church rejects very strongly you could say actually they might have a little something in common you know nothing major but a little something because proportionalism does always take the situation into account and says you know that there are exceptional circumstances when you know there is a proportionate reason to not follow the rule um but of course as i say the catholic church disagrees you know very strongly about that um, and then also I thought it's interesting to note that Aquinas and Fletcher do actually see the conscience in quite a similar way both of them see it more as an act you know with Aquinas it's about the use of reason um, and with Fletcher it's about a process um, as an act rather than a thing so they both do seem to see conscience more as a verb than a noun. But again, I think that's where the similarities end, isn't it? You know, natural moral law is great for critiquing situation ethics because of that contrast in them. Utilitarianism is an interesting one then because, you know, both are teleological and consequentialist. Bentham's calculus, as we've said, inspires Fletcher's. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, situation ethics focuses on pragmatism, which I think is quite similar to that principle of utility, usefulness. So they're both, you know, very practical and they're both about the consequences and they both provide a calculus. However, you know, you do then have key differences. Utilitarianism is secular. I think that's a really big difference. You could say utilitarianism is more applicable to more people because it doesn't depend, as we know about positivism, it doesn't depend on belief in God. Um, Bentham's utilitarianism is focused on pleasure and happiness rather than love. So it's got that different um, key value. And then, um, as we've said, situation ethics is positivist. It's about faith preceding understanding, whereas utilitarianism is empirically based. It's based on the idea that we can observe mankind has placed has been placed under two sovereign masters, pleasure and pain. Um, so really interesting to think again about comparing situation ethics to a theory. And then finally, just for the fun of it, I've included Kantian ethics. I think in terms of your similarities, you know, as you can see, they're non-existent, really. Um, Kantian ethics is extremely deontological. Kant would say that the end never justifies the means. You know, he is only interested in each act um, and in the morality of each act. There should be no consideration of the circumstances. There should be no consideration of the situation. So again, make sure you're using your ethical theories as part of your evaluation. You know, bring them in where it's relevant to show the examiner that you've got a really good understanding of the ethical theories and use them to evaluate each other. Okay, so we are gonna do some evaluation now. We're gonna have a look at a couple of strengths and a couple of weaknesses for situation ethics.
So your first strength that I want to give you is that for a Christian, it's great because it's grounded in Jesus's key teaching of agape. So situation ethics is grounded in the teaching and example set by Jesus, the key figure, as we know, the exemplar in Christianity. He is the key Christian teacher. He is the reason Christianity exists. The entire religion is founded upon him. And he taught very clearly, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus taught this central message that we should love God and love our neighbor. There is, he said, no commandment greater than these. Everything else, including the law, hangs on this kind of love that is taught by him, commanded by him and modeled by him in his life, but then also in his death. And of course, we've got particular stories that can back this up. So John chapter eight is the story of the adulterous woman who the Pharisees, you know, who would be seen as the legalistic people of the day would have stoned in accordance with the law of Moses. So again, talking about the law and sticking to the law, loving the law rather than loving people, as Fletcher said, Jesus refused to condemn her and told her to sin no more. And we can say that love motivated him, that he put aside the law in order to do the most loving thing and reflecting the fact that situation ethics is about personalism. It's about people loving people rather than loving the law. So if he loved the law, he'd have had a great time stoning away. But because he loved people, he put people first, he showed love, he showed compassion, and he, he showed mercy. And then Luke 6 is the story of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And again, this shows that he put people and love for people over laws and a love for laws. So, you know, we can say this theory is grounded in the example set by Jesus because his key teaching, his golden rule is love. And that is not only taught by him, but it's also modeled by him as well. If you want to be a Christian, then you want to be a follower of Christ, don't you? So follow in his footsteps and reject a love of law and focus on living a life of love. Okay, your next strength is that it provides individual autonomy. If you think about the Western world today, we do live in a world of independence and, you know, the individual has been exalted. It is all about individualism. That is, you know, a product of capitalism, isn't it? And the consumerist society that we live in. And so you could say it's very compatible with the modern way of thinking about the individual as an autonomous being. So situation ethics empowers the individual to make their own decisions in the situations that they encounter. You are not just blindly following rules, you are empowered to make your own judgments. This is in contrast to legalistic approaches, which require people to act against their own reason and emotion by following rules that may not fit the situation or sit right with them and their moral instincts. Now, of course, remember, situation ethics doesn't just say do what you emotionally want to do. It is demanding on you, but it is giving you the autonomy at the same time to work it out for yourself so that you at least understand why you're doing what you're doing rather than just having to do something that completely contradicts your own beliefs because that's the law that you have to follow. So it gives you that self-awareness, that independence, that autonomy and that insight. Uh, with situation ethics, the individual has autonomy, as I say, to make moral judgments that are appropriate for the circumstances they find themselves in. So again, it's valuing the individual, it's empowering the individual, it's giving them understanding into why they're doing what they're doing, not just because, well, that's what the law says, that's what Thomas Aquinas decided in the 1200s. And this reflects the idea that God has made humans imago Dei in the image of God with the ability to reason and think for themselves. 
And another strength, it provides flexibility, making it relevant and applicable. So, you know, we could say with natural moral law, for example, it's now outdated on sex ethics. Society has moved on. Natural moral law is stuck in the past because it is legalistic and inflexible. Whereas situation ethics, because it is so um, based on the situation, continues to be relevant because it provides flexibility in moral decision making, reflecting the complexity of life and the uniqueness of the situations we find ourselves in. It can accommodate modern developments, for example, medical advances, new understandings of human sexuality and new technologies. You know, natural moral law can't talk about TikTok, it can't talk about Instagram, whereas situation ethics can be applied to these situations precisely because it's situational, it's relative and it's flexible. Uh, so it can be applied also to different societies in different time periods. Love remains the constant and love is still enduring. If you think in society today, we do still see love as a very important thing. We see those who live a life of love, you know, in a very favorable way. It's still seen as a key virtue um, that we do admire and we do aspire to have in our lives. So we can say it does remain relevant. This means situation ethics is applicable in a vast array of circumstances and does not lose its relevance you can't say it's outdated because it's constantly keeping up with the different situations and different time periods because it is so flexible that's in its dna however we could say in terms of our weaknesses that actually it gives too much responsibility to individuals it gives the individual complete moral responsibility more than the bible or the church as you know from paper two sources of wisdom and authority the catholic church is not going to be happy about that we could say not only you know is that irresponsible but also it's a heavy burden especially when you always have to show agape you know you've always got to be thinking of this selfless unconditional love you could say, are people actually capable of always doing that? But also, is it fair to put that burden on them, to give them that constant responsibility? Uh, as Barclay says, if all men were saints, then situation ethics would be perfect. But what we know is that people aren't. Um, we could say it risks people making mistakes or feeling unable to make a decision at all. You know, you could keep going back to your calculus because you're not sure if you've made the right decision. If everything's on your shoulders, you're going to want to get it right rather than just following a law that you know has been tried and tested as, you know, the best course of action to take in that situation. We'd also say it remains open to being misused. People could end up serving their own ends and using the autonomy of situation ethics to justify doing so. Well, I thought that would be the most loving thing to do. You know, how can we ever hold people accountable if their response is always going to be, well, I thought that would lead to the most loving outcome. The end justified the means I took. And we could also say it's impossible to apply across society. It only works for individuals in extreme circumstances. So, as I say, Barclay is not impressed at all. He says situation ethics gives a terrifying degree of freedom. He said if all men were saints, then situation ethics would be perfect. But they are not. Um, and if you've studied states of nature, Augustine's original sin, for example, that shows you it doesn't work because we have this predisposition towards sinfulness and selfishness. And so you can't just expect people to follow agape and do the most loving thing in every situation because that doesn't necessarily come naturally to them. 
They need laws. They need rules. People need to have rules. Otherwise, there would be anarchy. Otherwise, everyone would just be in it for themselves. As Barclay says, the lesson of experience. So actually, if we look at the history of humanity, of all human societies, of all human groups and gatherings, we can see that we need a certain amount of law being the kind of people we are. So again, states of nature, what are humans like, human psychology, we could say, you know, it shows us, it demonstrates to us, we need a certain amount of law, not necessarily going overboard and legislating what people have for breakfast, lunch and dinner, but we need at least some laws in order for society to function and in order for all people, or, you know, the majority of people to be doing the right thing. We could also say it's actually impractical. We do need those clear rules and laws. And Barclay said that situation ethics, you know, it, it works for extreme cases, perhaps, but actually as a normative ethical theory, it isn't going to work. You can't just say to the entire world population, just do the most loving thing in every situation. That's all you need to worry about. Off you go. Can you imagine the chaos and the anarchy? Um, and so Barclay says it is much easier to agree that extraordinary situations need extraordinary measures than to think that there are no laws for ordinary everyday life. It only works for extreme cases, not everyday life. So thinking, for example, about driving. Imagine if you just said to drivers, the only law on the roads is going to be do the most loving thing. Off you go. <laughs> so you don't have to follow the red lights. You don't have to drive on the right side of the road. You don't have to stick to the speed limit. Just get your agapeic calculus out and think, what's the most loving thing for me to do? Yeah. So, you know, if you start to think about it like that in terms of those everyday mini rules that we all have to follow so that society will function, you start to realise that this just doesn't work, that it's totally impractical. As Barclay writes, ethics is on the whole meant to simplify things and to make life easy. So, for example, rules of the road, you know, these basic rules that we follow because it makes life easy for everybody. It saves us from the difficult and often dangerous task of making our own judgments. If you then say to people in every single situation, you have now got to make your own judgment, imagine the consequences. I don't think anyone would ever leave the house because they'd be unable to make those judgments, you know, and they'd be unable to function because they'd be too busy on the agapeic calculus trying to calculate what they should or shouldn't be doing. John Macquarie suggests that because situation ethics is about individuals making individual decisions based on the specific circumstances that they find themselves in, it is difficult to see how this could be applied across a society. So it might be great for extreme circumstances when you should occasionally put the rules aside to do the most loving thing. But as, as we say, as a normative approach to ethics, this just isn't going to work, is it? We need some rules, not just strict rules about, you know, um, murder and things. But as I say, those little rules and laws about, you know, you can't do, you, you know, you can't do this. You can't drive on the wrong side of the road. We need those. We need them so society will function. And of course, if you want to critique the teleological aspect of things, you could say the end does not always justify the means. And of course, Immanuel Kant would agree there, wouldn't he? But William Barclay, our key um, critic here, says there are things which in no circumstances can be right, whereas, of course, situation ethics says that absolutely are. So situation ethics says that love is 
are the only intrinsic good. Everything else is therefore dependent on the situation. And as I say, Barclay says, actually, no, there are some things which are just in no circumstances right. Rape, for example, you could say. So the Catholic Church, remember, they do reject situation ethics, maintains that certain things are intrinsically evil. Abortion and euthanasia, for example, are always wrong, according to the Catholic Church. And uh, rape is described as always an intrinsically evil act by the catechism. Now, you could say, well, you know, in situation ethics, the agapeic calculus would never say that rape is the most loving thing to do. Um, but... The point here is, you know, if we look at the point here, it's that the end does not always justify the means. And, you know, that is what situation ethics is hypothetically arguing, um, that the only thing is love. And that is a very, very loose term, isn't it? That the only intrinsic good is love. Is that not open to misuse, to abuse, to manipulation? Um, and then, of course, the problem with calculating it is that love, could end up justifying things that are not right, yeah? So he gives the example of breaking up a family relationship in the name of so-called love as something that can never be right. So again, you know, what could this theory end up justifying? Where would we end up? You know, a criticism of utilitarianism is that it becomes a swine ethic. You know, what kind of things does it justify? For example, utilitarianism could, uh, you know, justify gang rape, for example, the greatest pleasure for the greatest number. You know, think about what could this justify? What is loving? You know, obviously, if you are applying agape very strictly, it's got to be that unconditional selfless love. But how many people, as we've said, are actually capable of consistently applying that in their ethical and moral decision making? And so that is it from me today. Any questions you have, do let me know in the comments. Thanks for watching and goodbye.